world awaits flu pandemic, flu ban heightens trade tensions, viral sovereignty risks global health. Throughout history, plague and pestilence have had no respect for geographical borders. But what difference has international travel had on the rate of transmission of disease? I'm Nick Baker and in this edition of Moments in Medicine, we look to the past and the latest research to examine disease in a jet age. Nowadays, the sound of sneezing and coughing on an international flight is as threatening as an unattended package on a train. Swine flu, avian flu, SARS, tuberculosis. One of the biggest media health stories of the age is the apparent inevitability of a pandemic. Statistically, we're due one, say experts when they're asked by the media. Yet often, these epidemics simply go away. So is it hype? or an unpleasant reality of jet-fuelled globalisation? Can we stop viruses benefiting from the same ease of international travel that we enjoy? Joining me round the table to discuss this is Professor Steve King from the History of Medicine Department at Oxford Brookes University. He's a historical demographer. Professor Philip Stott, a biogeographer from the University of London, and Dr Bill Hannage, Research Fellow in Epidemiology at Imperial College London. And Bill Hannage, we'll start with you. Where should we focus our attention when it comes to looking at this kind of epidemic? At the airport, at the farm, at the pigsty? Well, none of those things, really. I would suggest that the most important thing is the community, because for any pandemic, which is defined by the World Health Organization as sustainable community spread in two regions then you have to have community spread, which means from human to human. And we're far more likely to meet a human and get infected by a human than we are a pig. I mean, most of us are. I mean, there are a few cases of people being infected by pigs and indeed at least one case in Canada of a human infecting their pigs. So it does go back and forth between humans and pigs. Uh, But by far the most likely thing that we're going to get is by infected by other human beings. But one of the things that uh, is bandied about is the idea that somehow it's poor animal husbandry that has actually started these off. Well, we've had animals being farmed in very large numbers for quite a long period of time. If you were to really think that the issues of animal husbandry were underlying pandemics, then you'd have expected one perhaps slightly before now. We've actually had 40 years since the last pandemic. So really, there isn't much evidence for that. Okay, so if we look for a list of conditions, a list of reasons why pandemics start, I know, Philip Stott, that you've got a list of these conditions. Yes, and interestingly, the domestication of animals and the relationship with humans would be one in that list, though not probably the most important one. The two key ones, I think, are war and civil disorder. 1917, for example, the Russian Revolution, up to three million people killed by typhus. The second one of its trade. That's the equivalent to the hypermobility of the present day, the Silk Road, bubonic plague, then spread by the Crusades. And then, of course, you've got to have novel strains of viruses and bacilli, obviously, and also sometimes new vectors, new carriers of disease. And finally, urbanisation. Urbanisation can often bring all these together, and that can lead to epidemics and to pandemics. Steve King, you've made a study of the transmission of disease in the past as a medical historian. What can we learn from pandemics of the past? 
I think that urbanisation is actually one of the key things. Transmission mechanisms are interesting and they're important, but it is your susceptibility to catching these things once they're in a population, which is the key thing. So urbanisation and the density of population in particular remains one of the key things which determine both how many people catch this disease and how many people die. A second point is that certainly in the past, if you look at epidemics and pandemics of things like cholera, then people have knowledge. Certainly by the 1860s, when cholera is rolling across Europe from Asia like a tank, they know broadly how to prevent it. They know all about containment measures, and none of it, not one single bit of it, works. Bill Hannage. Yeah, I'd like to really emphasise that the most important thing is density of human populations, because a lot of these diseases cannot exist in a population which is below a certain density. And the most important thing, certainly in terms of people who live in temperate regions, in terms of the disease that we get, was the domestication of livestock. If you look at a lot of the very high-profile diseases, things like TB, things like measles, things like mumps, they all came originally from livestock. Measles from, we think, cattle. Mumps, we think, from pigs. Even smallpox, most likely that came from camels. So the relationship between us and the animals we domesticate has been absolutely crucial. But Bill, as an epidemiologist, what do we actually know about viruses like H1N1? How do they work? Well, flu viruses infect human beings, obviously, but also pigs and horses and waterfowl, ducks, things like that. And periodically, they infect something like a pig. And a pig is a very good thing for causing a pandemic because it seems to be like a sort of oinky, curly-tailed test tube. It can be infected by human viruses, bird viruses, and horse viruses as well as its own sort. And then they get shaken up inside and form a new mix which can then infect a human being or indeed another animal. And that's what appears to have happened with H1N1. But I'm looking for a war to put our current concern over swine flu into context. What what was it? Well, in terms of a flu pandemic, I mean, while there was obviously a war going on at the famous 1918-1919 one, which had considerable impact certainly on the politics of it and how much it was reported at the start of it. But if you look at 1950, late 1950s, 57, 1968, and now, there does not appear to be any particular trigger. So while it's very important in general for the spread of infectious disease and pandemics, perhaps the association with flu is not quite as important as it is in other cases. And I think we need to... Go on, Steve. I think we need to come back to some of the historical parallels here. What it, what is the trigger? We can ask. But what, one of the interesting things about diseases in the past is that they vary in intensity, both in terms of transmissibility and their killing power, of their own accord. Not just in terms of, of how they're mixed up, not just in terms of urbanisation and density and all the other yeah. things, but they simply vary in intensity. For instance, the plague. If we look at the plague in the 1300s, the case fatality rate was well over 70 percent. But by the time we get to the 1660s and the late 17th century, wherever it occurs, the case fatality rate is much lower because of changes in the disease itself. I wanted to return to this idea of globalisation, which may or may not be a red herring. All these shots that we've seen on the news about people sneezing at airports are apparently irrelevant, Steve King, from from the medical history point of view. From the medical history point of view, uh, yes, by and large. Why? Um, The key thing is once the disease is in the population... How does it spread? So it can be spread by aerosol means, it can be spread by water, it can be spread by a whole means of vectors. Aerosol vector is only one way of spreading disease. And in terms of human travel, Philip Stock? Actually, it's before that that the spread takes place. And what you've got to ask is how many 
people does one person with it actually spread it to? And on average, it's between about 1.4 to 1.8. So you've got to build that in the model. So it's got to be perfect timing, etc. And I think the key point is exactly what was stressed by Bill at the beginning. It's the community, isn't it? It's where it is in the community. That linkage won't necessarily be the key factor ultimately in the spread of the disease. So jet travel doesn't speed it up, Bill Hammond. Well, it doesn't. What it doesn't, Philip's quite right that for an epidemic to occur at all, on average, each infection must cause one infection or more going on from it in a susceptible population. Otherwise, you just don't get these things. The thing about jet travel is that it does mean it's going to spread over a wider region more quickly, but it doesn't necessarily mean that more people are going to get infected more quickly. If this were happening in the complete absence of jet travel, then you'd be expecting similar numbers of people in total to be infected, but they'd probably be more locally concentrated. Steve King. If you look at previous editions, if you like, of flu and cholera, we didn't have jet travel, and yet it spreads really very rapidly indeed. If you look at something like cholera, it spreads from the very borders of Europe as as we understand it, right across Europe through to Ireland and England in less than five months, killing literally millions of people. I think we underestimate the density of trade, you see, and movement. If you think of somewhere like Venice and diseases coming to Venice, for example, and spreading out to to the Middle East and so forth, I think we underestimate trade and the movement that was there before. Although if we were to think of cholera, I mean, um, just to interject and be maybe a little bit more awkward, if you think about cholera, cholera is a disease of a very particular sort of environment and a particular sort of sanitation. If we were to take an airplane and go back to the time which you're talking about and suddenly pick up somebody from the borders of Eastern Europe Mm. and drop them in Dublin or even just down the road in Soho, say around where the great cholera epidemic occurred in the 1860s, I think, then the disease would have spread there instantaneously. And that's much more like we have now. I mean, I don't want to say that people did not move in the past. They moved a great deal and diseases spread very quickly. But the whole reason why, say, smallpox was so absolutely devastating to the people of the Americas was that they had not been exposed to it before because people did not travel there. Yeah, but that's the difference, isn't it? You were moving point to point and often to isolated areas that had never actually had the disease or experienced it in that form before. Mm. Whereas now, of course, you're taking it to in a globalised world, often where they have been much more widely spread. Which is why something like H1N1, to which we apparently have very little resistance. Exactly. Globalisation is often seen as a bit of a villain, but in this case... Philip Stott, you think that it can help? Well, globalisation is a two-edged sword, Nick. I think we should look at it that way. First, there are some real benefits about it. Information, knowledge. In other words, we can respond. Our epidemiologists and our doctors and our nurses, etc., across the world can learn from each other quickly and, in fact, can help to stop some of the spread of these diseases because of global information, understanding and knowledge. And that's a good thing. But on the other hand, there is this kind of protective atmosphere in some places, Bill Hannage. Philip's absolutely right that we have a huge globalised world of people who are thinking about the science and how to respond to it, but you do still have to get over local political concerns, which do exist. If you want to think of merely something as simple as MRSA, if you have MRSA rates which are very high in your local hospital, you would not wish to trumpet that for reasons which might be quite good. And there's this new problem of what's known as viral sovereignty, Nick, a serious issue, where one or two countries in the world are beginning to withhold both information and samples 
of the viruses and bacteria because they believe in a conspiracy from the north and the west that it's about our pharmaceutical companies coming to dominate and they're withholding information and this is actually potentially very serious. Steve King. I think it's also worth saying just in relation to this that in the 19th century in the pages of The Lancet there is this persistent debate about responses to epidemics of various diseases and how to share knowledge who to share it with, who to exclude. So this is not a new thing. This is an intense debate in the 19th century. And what about the role of public education? Public education is of immense importance, both in terms of trying to help people protect themselves and their families and in terms of just trying to slow the rate of spread of a disease. I mean, one thing which I've noticed people really haven't appreciated, certainly from the current government health broadcasts and so on and so forth, is something which I think Philip mentioned earlier, which is that flu virus is infectious for a couple of days before you start displaying symptoms. So the thing you started off with, with the spectre of a person coughing and spluttering over people on a transatlantic flight, is considerably less frightening than the kind of person who is just sitting there quietly shedding virus and infecting people, just sort of wiping their nose with their hand briefly and then going to the loo and touching several different things along the flight as they walk down the aisle. Those are the people who are going to be more infectious. Is there anything, Steve King, because this is sounding more and more bleak as we go on, is there anything positive that we can learn from your area of medical history or are we all doomed? There is a regularity to these things. And from my point of view as an historical demographer, I'm afraid we're due another large-scale outbreak. There are too many of us. We are too closely costed together. And we live lives which facilitate the spread of these sorts of diseases. So we're due one, and it's due to kill a lot of us. So disease in the jet age, then, is much the same as disease in the sail age, the train age, the camel age, the horse age. Philip Stark? I think the point-to-point that the spread can often be faster will change its characteristics. But I think the fundamentals still remain exactly those that have been patterned out through history. Bill Hannage? I agree. The fundamentals are the same, but it depends on whether or not you think the devil is in the details. I tend to see the devil, and he's quite detailed. Steve King? I think there's no difference at all. Transmission of these viruses was relatively quick then and is now. Professor Philip Stott from the University of London, Dr Bill Hannage from Imperial College, and Professor Steve King at Oxford Brookes University, thank you for sharing your insight into this moment in medicine. 